Yeah, I mean, I don't know what they use. I know we, we've been able to get pretty close to them. Um, so the one time that we used an Enlaw on that BMP was actually in Moshoon, and uh, we we were they were right on top of us. Uh, again, we failed. We failed massively because we didn't have the standoff set to the 20 meter uh, setting. Um, luckily, the BMP immediately reversed, uh, probably thinking there was going to be a follow up shot. Um, <clears throat> when we hit it and it didn't go off, we basically ran. <laughs> so there was no follow up shot. But um, yeah, with the tank stuff, it's like I said, I can't really comment on their doctrine because I don't know their doctrine. I've never really looked into it. It's just if we get told to go out and try to hit this tank that's been harassing them, uh, we try to do it. And then you maybe have a few minutes to move before you get a return shot. So, um, and that, like our our guy that got hurt with the head stuff, um, they didn't get back quick enough. So they got a return shot. But, I mean, it, it's going to happen. They, they're not really quick on the gun, but they're not. I don't I can't really comment on their doctrine on it, honestly. No worries, mate. Uh, we'll move over back to Constantine, and then we go to Troy and Phil. So I have two two more questions. Uh, uh, first, uh, is is it true that Enlo does not uh, work well when there is a something made of metal between you and the target, like you know, like a broken uh, BMP or truck, or I don't know, some something just uh, scrap metal, and it has chances on going off uh, uh, prematurely. Constantine, yeah. you mean sig signal deflection for the seeker? Uh, yeah, so you have something uh, between us and, and then it, uh, between you and, and your target. And uh, even though you, you aimed correctly, it can go off uh, uh, when it's going to fly over. That's uh, I, I've heard this feedback, but I didn't yeah. quite uh, made it. I know what you're talking about. So we haven't experienced that. We were actually told that by the Ukrainians uh, to watch out for that. Uh, we've been told to aim higher and it won't deflect it away or won't set it off uh, sooner. The other option you have is you have that 20 meter and then you have the 100 meter standoff for the safety fuse or the uh, arming mechanism. Um, so, I mean, there's that that can counter that if you're close enough. But we've been told that by the Ukrainians that have been with us. We haven't experienced it ourselves. Um, but it is it is something that goes around and like they're, they're aware of it. Um, I don't know how they're countering it. Uh, we haven't ran into that issue yet so if we ever do i guess we'll figure it out then got it so and the second uh, second question is uh I, probably someone have asked you but have asked you this but i i tend to ask it everyone uh, but this is quite important for me specifically uh what is uh what would you say is the most important thing uh like in terms of you know equipment and supplies that can be provided by organizations such as uh, such as Maria Aid, such you know civilian uh, civilian donors that uh, can provide you with i don't know drone drones vehicles food whatever uh, wh what you think is the uh, most important one and i will explain why why i, I ask uh, what important to hear this from you is that i have my friend who is a commander platoon of uh, hunt, uh, of uh, uh, the uh, same as you or the hunting tanks but uh, he he was trained for this and uh, in national guard uh, recently not, not that far far long ago and i've been asking him but he's a 57-year-old, and he'd rather tell me he would never ask for anything 
Uh, so I was wondering if I could, you know, just uh, just uh, tell him, okay, this the uh, the experienced guys are saying that he, you're gonna need this. Do you have it? If he's gonna say no, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to him. So uh, that's why it's super super uh, important for me. Thank you. Yeah. So first thing, uh, the most needed right now with the TDF getting activated is obviously gonna be the body armor, uh, Kevlar helmets, um, <clears throat> other things that are good for for the tank hunting specifically, a laser range finder. Um, you can counter that by using the javelin as a rangefinder, but it's a lot easier to use something small. You can push a button on it quick. It tells you if it's in range or it's out of range because it's too far, too short, you know, if it's too far away. Um, the other thing is a good set of binoculars. Um, if their primary goal is literally just going to be going out and hunting tanks, uh, especially if you're in the South, good set of binoculars and a laser rangefinder. Um, <clears throat> there's other things that you can do, um, uh, any type of camo netting that you can fit in a backpack. It doesn't have to be large. It's just got to be enough to cover up one or two people. Um, and then obviously your medical kits. I hope there's enough medical kits going around, but there's probably not still. Um, but as far as being able to take out a tank, I would say outside of the rocket and the missile, basically the laser rangefinder binoculars um, is probably key on that on that stuff. Um, radios works well too um but for as far as being able to get a good grasp on your situational awareness before you either launch a missile or what you're looking for binos laser range finder is probably the best and then like i said you know everyone's always looking for plate carriers uh bulletproof vests all that stuff plus your kevlar uh, thank you. And what 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 would you say, range finder? You know, there is a wide spectrum. You can buy one for uh, seventy dollars, and there are ones that cost like ten thousand dollars. What would you say? You know, the the minimum one, the minimum one that works, because I I would not want to send seventy dollar one. You know, but spending, for example, ten thousand dollars is out of um, out of the <laughs> my scope as well. Yeah, so for a laser rangefinder, I would say you want to find one that can go just a little bit further than the max range of a javelin. Um, <clears throat> the ones we got, I believe, go to like uh, 2.5, like 2.5 or 3 kilometers. Um, those tend to be the best. So at, at the max range for a javelin, it's pretty hard to get a lock on um, just because of how small the target gets in the in the clue. So, you know, if the only thing you can find is something that goes to one, you know, one and a half, 1.5 kilometers, that'll work. But I would get them something that's over a thousand meters, but it doesn't have to be a $5,000 laser rangefinder. Anything that can get them to like 1,500 meters uh, would be the best. Um, <clears throat> if that's all pricey, just, you know, a decent set of binoculars, that's maybe like a 10X or something that they can do. Um, so what's and, yeah I, I I got it thank you and uh, the, what what is the what specifically the one that you use what is the brand so like Lake I know uh, people send it. I'm I'm sorry to be specific here but quite you know uh, Steiner and, and etc would you would you recommend some some specific brand Yeah shoot me a PM I'm not sure offhand what the brand is um, like I said I'm not the javelin guy so I don't usually care I'd have to ask him. Uh, but if you shoot me a PM, I'll uh, I'll get back to you on that, and I can give you good brands for the binoculars too. Uh, with some of the binoculars, you can actually do uh, range finding within the binoculars too. So if the laser range finder is out of the price range, you can get them a set of binoculars that allows you to uh, judge distance as well by how big the 
tank or whatever the object is in the picture. Yeah, I so yeah, I, I'm a former sniper, so I, okay. I, I know okay, how perfect. it works. But uh, thank you, I I will reach out to. You. Thanks. Ryan, uh, Ryan, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, and, and I think the reason Constantine asked this and, and perhaps part of, the, you know, one of the, the main drivers of, of this room here um, is supporting folks like you on the ground, uh, you know, whether it's through Ripley's Heroes or Constantine has done some stuff. But uh, this room, if people can do it, they uh, they support an organization called Maria Aid uh, and Maria Aid sends non-lethal equipment uh, from Canada over to Ukraine to help folks like you. So so, Ryan, uh, I just want to say thank you for for that portion of it and just on that same subject just asking um if you can connect with artois and send him a list of you know needs that you're talking about from this if you have the time i mean we've we've written some of these down uh and maria aid has, has sent many of these items individual first aid kits um i believe they've sent plate carriers they've sent different things but binos and rangefinders um you know all that support matters and constantin uh with a different organization has supported to get artillery troops uh electronic earmuffs so they don't go deaf. Uh, so Ryan, I'm going to keep on this subject here, and I'm going to thank you for 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 doing that, and I'm going to thank you for whatever we can do to you. Um, can, can can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, so I was going to keep with that subject and transition just slightly and ask you, you know, what what are your creature comforts like right now? What is your uh, when when you get a little bit of downtime? What are you sleeping on the on a pad? Are you eating Oreos? What are you snacking on? What are the things? What are the other things that that you could do or you're getting by with? Tell us about that. Uh, honestly, like I really don't do creature. So like we have guys that bring like sleeping bags, sleeping pads. As bad as it sounds, I usually just bring a poncho with me. Uh, one of the Ukrainians gave me this really really nice poncho. Um, when I was up north with Eros Vidka, and that's basically all I brought. It keeps you warm. It does all that. As far as creature comforts, I don't know. Like, usually if, if we're near a city and somebody's going back to get some supplies, I'll get, like, a Snickers bar. But otherwise, I'm pretty simple. I don't really need creature comforts. It doesn't really – I don't know. I'm just – I'm used to being in the shit, so it doesn't really <laughs> – I don't Like, I, we don't – I don't really have creature comforts. Um, I just – I deal with it. And, and <laughs> so – It's hard to explain. No, no, not at all. I, I don't think that it's hard to explain. Uh, it, so from a basic percept, per, perspective, your your minimum needs are met. You're, you you have water. You have access to some some form of nutrition. Uh, are there any problems there uh, getting water, getting the, the, the basic nutritional supplies you need? There can be. Um, <clears throat> very early in the war, uh, when we were uh, newbies to this, when we were brand new, when we first came over, we were in Moshuna. We didn't eat for that whole time. Uh, it was like five days, roughly. We ate once, actually. Uh, I cooked. We we ended up going in the garage that was in a building right near us, and we found pasta, and we made pasta with, like, bubbly. The, they call it gas water, but it's basically CO2 water. Um, and that was about the only thing we ate <laughs> for five days was a bowl of pasta between, like, 12 of us. But um, since then, we've gotten a little bit better. The supply logistics are a lot better. There's MREs. Um, <clears throat> water isn't really an issue um luckily we've never had a water issue uh unless it's one of us not bringing water on an op like the amount that we should and then that you know then we just cross over and call him an idiot later on um <clears throat> but yeah i mean our, our our basic needs are met um i don't know if that's true with like all the units like the tdf and stuff but yeah like our our logistics in the unit i i'm in that i'm getting transferred out of their the logistics are pretty good for them um i when they were in in the east recently they they had a food supply issue for a little bit but that's mainly because the artillery uh you know getting down the road to them was hard but um typically we're pretty good so 
baby wipes. Baby wipes is about the only good creature comfort because when you're getting dusty and muddy and whatever else, it's just good to be able to wipe your face off. <laughs> yeah, no, I think these are the details exactly that that people want to hear just to understand, you know, to try to get into your perspective more, even if if even if even if we can't be from over here. Um, so so talking about that, are you guys cooking meals for each other? Is that done for you outside of there? I, I know it may be different from unit to unit or whom you're around. Uh, could you talk to us? Are are you cooking on a a little stove for for the guys? Are you guys doing individual meals? How's how's your life working out with that? Yeah, so we have some guys that have like the little uh i don't know what the stove name's called the british guys use them um <clears throat> i can't think of the name of it right now it's like with the white gas or whatever the little canisters um we have guys that have those but actually depending where you're at the ukrainians actually have like a food base they'll grab food run it up to you if you're fully on the front front in some areas depending what you're doing you'll be getting an mre um the mres are usually pretty good uh the german ones are amazing just because they have like freaking three days worth of food even if you don't eat it, it's still like there in your pocket for later. Um, so yeah, I mean, typically I think most units are doing all right on the food and water side. I don't know what the TDF units. I've never really started with the TDF unit, except when I was in the north at the initial start of the uh, invasion for this invasion. Um, and when we were in the north at the initial start, the locals would actually cook us food. Um, even in the occupied areas that we were um, up in, way north of Bazaar. Uh, they would cook us food. So, I mean, uh, it all worked out. There, I'm sure there were some really unhappy Ukrainians at some points in this war over the food stuff. But, um, yeah, we get hot food when we can. Uh, you know, they they try to make sure that the soldiers are fed. So, And, Ryan, what are you on that on that note? What are you hearing from the other side if, if you're if you're ever close enough to whether it's a POW or, or just seeing? Do you do you think that the Russians have water and adequate water and food? Do you think they have water filtration? Do you think they're using uh, local supplies? Do you have any insights there? Um, I think a lot of it's going to be local. We, we have caught some POWs. Um... Uh, we never, I don't, I never really did ask if they asked about the water. They mainly, usually the Ukrainians ask about the operational side of things. And then <clears throat> they usually, like, if they know we got POWs, basically they send people to come grab them right away. Uh, they're not sitting in a unit, a, like a unit area for, you know, a week straight. Um, typically the unit commander will get whatever information and get out of them if the guy wants to talk. Uh, most of them do talk actually. So uh, they'll ask for like a cigarette and water. But I think they're I think they're probably getting a lot from the locals, but I'm sure the Russians have probably fixed their supply logistics a little bit better. Um, I get the the big one's gonna be when winter when winter sets in, we'll really know what the Russian supply logistics are like again. So Thank you. And and I'm just going to take a brief moment to break here and ask the audience to, to do a big favor here. Anyone who's listening, we have Ryan O'Leary, O'Leary with us. We're, we're very lucky to have him here. If everybody out there could share and retweet this space and tag Ryan in that, uh, if you folks could help amplify both, both Ryan and the space, please share and retweet the space that we're having, this discussion that we're having. Uh, it helps us continue to have discussions like this with, with people on the front lines. Uh, and, and with that, Ryan, I'm going to go to some questions questions here uh, from the audience. I know uh, there's a, a Troy who's been waiting and then Adva. Hey, Ryan, how are you doing, man? Um, just a quick couple of questions. You're you're in um, Ukraine currently? Yeah, I am. All right. Hey, is Task Force Yankee? I went over in March and tagged in with them for a while. Are they still uh, getting you um, 
you know, more troops, more got volunteers from the states. Is that still operation operating well, or do you know? Um, are you, um, I don't know. I know they're still around. Like Task Force Yankee itself is uh, the International Legion. Yeah, they're still getting volunteers. Uh, okay. If you go to any border crossing with Ukraine, there will be a person eventually that will find you and bring you to where you need to go. Uh, I probably won't go in more detail on that. Um, no, I, but eventually, had, eventually they'll come get you. Yeah, um, I had that conversation. I chose to keep my passport. Um, but anyway, that's another story. And then um, also uh, Swampy. You ever run across him? The yes, actually, I've, I've talked to them. You're talking to the EOD guy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've talked to him. He's doing good work. I think he was actually in Moshoon. I know he was in the north doing a lot of uh, the UXO stuff, and uh, he could probably be employed here for the next 70 years. Uh, I shouldn't say employed. I think he's volunteering everything that he's, he's doing. He's um, You're right. Yeah, they're still here. Actually, I saw their, their vehicle recently before I got to where I was. They're still here. They're still doing good work. Um, I haven't touched base with him for a while, but I know he's still alive, so that's good. Um, and I think he's actually been working with a lot of the local police. So, like, the police have, like, Kiev itself has their own EOD for police. And then, like, every oblast, I believe, I, I'm not sure on because I'm not an EOD guy, but I believe every oblast has their own little military or police uh, demining or EOD team. And he's been I, he's been doing good work training them, at least for the Kiev one. And I think he was in the Kiev region for at least a month, month and a half. Um, he might still be doing a lot in the Kiev region. I don't know. Like I said, I haven't touched base with him, but he's doing good work. He's not a fake or a fraud. That's solid. Yeah, he's the real deal. That's for sure. Hey, the, Ryan, the reason I wanted to speak to you and just to the group I was on last night and a couple of weeks before, uh, me, um, I, you know, Mark Hayward, the guy who came over, Special Forces guy from uh, Alaska and helped get the um, – the javelins, the battery power situation figured out. He's been on CNN, all the news networks. Are we talking about the modifications? Yeah, for the battery. Because the, yep, yep, yeah. Anyways, so me, Mark Hayward, Anton, um, he's the we one actually that, use one of those, by the way. I'll let them know, man. I'll let them know. We came out with a uh, drone package. We got a drone manufacturer that's doing drones at cost, and I'm not going to drop the website, but I am going to link. I'm going to DM you, and I just anyone who's a drone professional, someone who in the in this group that really knows a lot about drones, if you could DM me, I just want to send you the website and our specs because I think we have the ultimate package, and we've got one that can do an 82 millimeter mortar and um, carry it for 45 uh, minutes and and do a you know an effective precision drop so we're we've mark and i and some other drone people here in the states have got a solid package and that same package is twelve thousand or more we're putting that out for six so um i'm going to send you the link ryan i would just love your yeah shoot me a dm i can hook you up with the arrows vidka guys and uh some other ones that are doing uh or they're always looking for better drones okay uh, so yeah send me a pm because right now we're building, we're three we're three three to print our own uh, drop units now for the DJIs and stuff. So and perfect. Try, try once, once you to you. do me a favor. Try once you add it if you're into drones. You may have heard that Maria Aid has more recently uh, acquired and conveyed a Fury drone. So if you want to uh, shoot Gurney and myself a message, I will pass it on to our Canadian friends. Uh, 
on the more lethal side. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the objective. We've got a long range plane that's got over an hour fly time and it can go out uh, close to uh, 14 kilometers and it looks solid. These is an American drone company and they want to get behind. They want to make a difference in Ukraine. And I'm not dropping names. I'm just wanting to connect with people in the community that know drones. And if you guys see it's a solid project, then we'll push it out. OK, that's good. Send us. The yeah, sounds good. I'll do it. Ryan, appreciate you, man. Sorry I didn't bump into you when I was over there. I uh, really appreciate what you're doing, obviously. Yeah, it was hectic in that first first month. <laughs> yeah, man. Sir. Thank you, All guys. Right. Thanks, mate. Uh, uh, Ryan, thank you for uh, for all you're doing over there. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to, we, we had Malcolm Nance on about a month ago talking about the why, why he's there, um, not just what he's doing, but why he thought it was important to drop everything and uh, put his put his life on the line to go and support Ukraine with his uh, with his person um, specifically uh, risking essentially the ultimate sacrifice. And I was curious. I don't know how personally you can discuss this or how specifically, but what um, what you're giving up and why you're doing it, and if you could speak to some of your comrades as well, some of their stories. Yeah, so actually, before I came over here in March, I was actually running for Congress out of Iowa, uh, the 4th District in Iowa, Northwestern area. Um, <clears throat> most people are probably like, you shouldn't say where you live. Well, I mean, my name's out there, so it's not a big deal. Um, <clears throat> the reason I'm doing this, I believe in democracy. I believe in the right of Ukraine to determine their own path, whether that's with the West or with Russia or with China or with Venezuela. That doesn't bother me. Um, I don't care if they're anti-American at the end of this. Uh, at the end of the day, it's up to them to determine their own fate and their own future um, without being bullied by an invasion and by loss of land. <clears throat> so that's why I came over here. Um, a lot of the guys feel the same way. Uh, some other people, you know, there's some foreigners, not necessarily in my name, but there's other foreigners here that just wanted to come here to schwack Russians. I'm all for that. If that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do. As long as they do it in a legal manner, productive manner, and a disciplined manner, that's all good for them. Uh, but, yeah, I just came over here because I believe in the voice of the people and democracy. Um, as lame as that sounds, um, you know, we, we've had that in America for years and decades. And for a country to strive for that and then keep getting attacked by its neighbor, uh, I just wasn't going to stand for it. Basically put my money where my mouth is. Uh, thank you. Well, wow, thank you for, for your commitment and your sacrifice. And, and, you know, the why is important. I think people over here need to hear it um, back back in the States as well, because there are you know thousands who would put their life on the line to go. And then there are probably hundreds of thousands who support Ukraine in other ways. And then there are millions who are oblivious or have moved on, et cetera. So thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. Make sure you're voting. Okay. Thanks, Ezra. Uh I think display was waiting. I think Raver was ahead of me. Okay, apologies. Go ahead, Raver. Yeah, going back to the more macro scale, and if you already covered this, uh, I'm, I'm regretting having where I had to drive today. Have you noticed any type of evolution in Russian armor from more modern to more basic older systems as you guys have been able to attrit their... Well, I'll be quite honest with you. Um, how I identify the armor is if it's got wheels it's probably a btr if it's tracked and looks like a btr it's a bmp and if it has a big cannon that's shooting at me it's a tank um, i am terrible at identifying vehicles um outside of that so i wouldn't be able to tell you if it's been getting better or not 
honestly, <laughs> as bad as that sounds. I should, I really should probably research the vehicles a little bit more just so we, so I know the capabilities, but, um, I'm not the one that usually hits the tanks, so I haven't really worried about that. So, Okay, thanks, Raver. Uh, Despite, back to you. Hey, guys. Uh, I don't have a question per se. I just wanted to thank Ryan for everything he's doing. I wish we had more people like him out here in the world, or at least here in the States. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention was in the last 20 minutes or so, it seems we have Turkish and Finnish sources reporting that Turkey has now agreed to support Sweden and Finland's accession into NATO. Multiple sources reporting this. Yeah, and that's probably because you're going to see an operation here in Syria soon. And basically, those two countries are going to be really quiet, um, is what I'm going to assume is going to happen. Uh, Erdogan's already said he's going to start a new operation. We'll see how that turns out or what that deal is with. Uh, obviously, I'm pro-Kurdish. I'm not pro-YPG necessarily, though. Um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see what Turkey has in store. Um, they obviously have. They do have some legitimate concerns. How they've how they've acted on those concerns in the past, I don't agree with. Um, I'm not pro Turkish either. But like killing your own people, not doing peace agreements properly, like that's not just what it is. Uh, we, that's a whole different subject, though. But yeah, um, if that's true, that's good, um, and that's probably going to signal to Russia that. Their objectives is actually the opposite of what they're trying to achieve. Like the opposite of what they wanted is not happening. Uh, you know, the more people that are in NATO, the more threat it is to Russia, obviously. And they're actually pushing people to it, which if we go off Putin, that's not what he wanted. But, you know, um, I don't I don't know if it's really going to escalate things. I don't think we're at World War Three stage yet. Uh, I mean, we're creeping closer to it, but uh, hopefully they do get in NATO, though. I think it'll be good for them. Um, so especially when you have aggressive neighbors. Okay, thanks, uh, Displaying. Artois. Yeah, Ryan, this, this, is, uh, this is another question um, from, from a listener who couldn't quite have an audio issue. So, again, this is this is probably one that maybe have to start um, sort of carefully for, for OPSEC reasons or whatever, but you mentioned obviously um, improvised explosives are, have kind of been your forte since you've been in Ukraine. Um, and I know you've mentioned pre- previously in, um, with the Kurds and stuff as well. But they, they, they were wondering how you find, uh, have you successfully kind of integrated this kind of uh, let's call it improvised explosive uh, approach alongside you know the arrows guys and um, other drone units rather than just you know dropping the anti-tank munitions and, and stuff that we've seen previously um, you mentioned you're, you're doing a lot of kind of like proper homebrew stuff um, I was wondering if you could go any, any more details on that obviously without revealing anything um, too much yeah um what do you, so the, the Ukrainians are adapting and they're learning it. The Eros Vidka guys are extremely smart. They, they're, they're highly adaptive. And I, this, the, the reason why they were a threat to the Russians at the start with the logistics supply chain at the rear uh, is predominantly because they are extremely adaptive. They're extremely smart. Um, you know, I was with them. We were taking 40 millimeter, uh, 40 mic mics that the NATO gave us. We were chopping the back end off with a handsaw, taking two pliers, pull the um the yellow part which is like the explosive part out from the rest of the body uh pull out the um well what's the name of the fuse type pull out basically pull out the safeties of it so once it hits the ground it goes off um they're still doing stuff like that uh it's a little sketchy doing it but um yeah they're adapted the ukrainians themselves um there are guys going around teaching people how to, to 
disassemble like the Vogs, like the Vog 17s or whatever they're called, uh, the 30 millimeters to be able to drop to. And that's why you're seeing a lot more of these drone videos come out because they are teaching units how to do that. They're not teaching them the other stuff that I usually deal with, which is like cell phone detonators, obviously, and stuff like that. But they're teaching them the stuff that can they can use effectively and safely to not kill civilians, uh, predominantly the uh, drone munitions. So I don't think you'll see a lot of the ground and play stuff because, again, it takes a little bit of practice to ensure that what you're doing isn't going to accidentally kill civilians. So there are units out there that obviously do sabotage stuff too, but they also have a lot more experience. Ryan, I'm just going to ask you to to sort of expand on that that point you made there about um, Ukrainians and and innovation that may that may be occurring. Um, and you mentioned specifically some of the aerial units, uh, whether it's the aerial units themselves or or in other units. Could you sort of put into perspective with us? Uh, you've you've had experience with the U.S. military. You've had experiences um, with with the Kurds. Could you just give a, the audience a little bit of context to 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 whether you see uh, innovation happening in Ukraine um, at a usual pace or, or if it's exceptional, or just if you could compare and contrast that with, say, uh, your experience with, with um, the, the military as you knew it from the, from the U.S. military and sort of like the, uh, you know, uh, procurement side or the pace of that. Is there a difference in the pace of it? Is there a difference in the pace of adaptation? Are you seeing things that are exceptional or, 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 or somewhat average? Um, so like U.S. military, the innovation doesn't work. So the, the big difference between like the U.S., the Kurds and the Ukrainians, like the Kurds are innovative. The Ukrainians are like six levels above them. Um, <clears throat> and that's predominantly because, in my opinion, um, the, the federal government of Ukraine has never been a strong point. So for the military has never been a strong point. So all these units, you know, for the last 20 years or, you know, since since the government changed in 2004 and then onward, um, a lot of these units have learned to rely on themselves, but at the same time, they have a, they, then they they also have a command structure. But it's it's not like if you're an officer, you can't be talked to. So like when a when a unit devises something or develops something, and then they go try it out and it works, you know they they'll tell their officer. Then their officer, you know, his friend or his colleague that he went to the institute for training on, might be in a different AO and be like, look, hey, I got something for you. I'll shoot it over to you on Telegram quick. Uh, if you have questions, call me. Um, so the flow of information on what is working and what is, isn't working is a lot quicker here. In the U.S., you know, it goes up your chain of command, boom, 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 then it's done. If it's done, uh, obviously in the U.S., if a unit said, hey, I'm going to build a drone and I'm going to drop a grenade on these guys, the U.S. government or the U your chain of command would probably tell you no, first off, uh, mainly because the risk is too high. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of innovation. The Kurds were innovative. But the problem that they had is they didn't have the sheer, the same amount of logistics set up for each of their units outside of the government. They had local supporters that would help them, but then getting it to them in large quantities wasn't there. Uh, Ukraine is like a hybrid. It's, it's something I haven't seen before. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. You could probably study it for years. but And it's hard to explain, but basically the units have their own logistics setups to where that if something works or if they want to try something get it done and try it and then it just it turns into like this whole supply chain that they're doing themselves without the without reliance on the government in kiev 
if that makes sense. No, Ryan, I, I, I hope that makes sense. At least it makes sense to me. And I, and I think you're highlighting that for the larger audience out there too. Um, and I'm just going to, you know, keep drilling into this just, just a minute because, um, it's, it's unique in terms of what you're saying. Uh, and so if the conditions are right, if, if the conditions on the ground and the units and, and the personnel, uh, and these things are, are coalescing at this moment in time and the Ukrainians are capitalizing on that, they're, they're using it to their advantage, uh, you know, if you're if you're finding them to capitalize and and use and create asymmetries, do you think that that could be recreated elsewhere, vis a vis Western militaries, or do you think they have uh, much to teach us about ourselves? I think it can be recreated um, predominantly, probably predominantly in countries that aren't like the Western military. So uh, the U.S. does like train and advise, or they call it the train and equip program. Uh, it's been an absolute abysmal failure for most of its history. Uh, I would say the one area they got it right was with the Kurds. Uh, and then the Ukrainians, because number one, they were receptive of it. Number two, they had the, you know, the Kurds, like I said, the Kurds had the ability to adapt and be like, okay, well, we can do this, blah, blah, blah. And we'll mesh it with Western training. They just had an issue getting the supplies and the logistics figured out for it. Um, the Ukrainians took the training that they learned. Uh, they've adapted it with these things, like the drones and stuff, you know. Um, I mean, it, I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain, but yeah, they, it could be replicated in a lot of these training and equip programs that the U.S. and the West is doing. It's just the West needs to have people who are, have been on the ground. To I, I don't know if anyone in the Western governments or the Western militaries are actually looking at how they are, how the Ukrainians are coming up with these ideas and then employing them and then how they're getting the supply chain set up like countries in Africa where they're trying to battle ISIS right now, how the Ukrainians have set up their supply logistics where this unit is, you know, they're not fully relying on the federal government. Obviously the weapons they are, but when they don't have it, when they have a deficiency, they find a way around it. They get a supply chain of their own setup and they keep moving. Um, that could definitely be replicated, but the West needs to understand how to do it properly. And I think the Ukrainians would probably, the Ukrainians have to teach them basically. Um, obviously no one's going to a military college in the U.S. to learn how to make improvised drones and then counter stuff with that and that and then set up a supply logistics behind it. Um, our military is more set in stone on supply logistics. If it doesn't come from your command, you're just not going to get it type deal. So, and that also transfers over to the train equip program, which we train like we would be trained for supply logistics fighting. Um, so I think there, if we could match the, uh, the Ukrainian supply their own units and they're self-sufficient in their own ways with how we train people to fight and probably make the train and equip program for at least the U.S. actually more efficient, if that makes sense. Ryan, thank you. No, I, I hope, uh, you know, this, our conversation today, uh, we, we try to record some of our clips and segments and put them out there. So we, we hope that the appropriate people are listening to these messages and, and taking home some of the points you're making um, from your perspective on the ground in, in Ukraine. Um, so, th- so thank you for, for elaborating on that. Uh, Artur. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, I guess, kind of a, a broad question in a way, but um Again, another listener mentioned that um, obviously, for some context, especially in the early days of the invasion, um, the, the the motorized tank units that took most of the the losses, let's say, were the were the you know air quotes elite um, tank divisions of the Russian army. You know, most of the first guards, um, you know, like the the 64th motorized rifle brigade, 31st guard, like the, all these kind of units, right? They 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 took serious serious losses. Um, and what's left now, as we can see from you know the tanks that they're pulling out of reserves, and 
these kind of uh, covert mobilizations and stuff that, that are going on. Has there been maybe, um, if not firsthand, have you heard from maybe other people that are fighting there that you're starting to see maybe a degradation um, in the quality of, of maybe the Russian forces, particularly, um, you know, those tank units and stuff um, in the east and elsewhere? Um, I do talk with some other foreign fighters, not too many, um, but some, and I mean, there's definitely a difference in how they're operating. Uh, obviously, like I said, they're doing a little bit more standoffish with their heavier, like the actual tanks, um, compared to like the BMPs and the BTRs. But I would say there is, um, actually I spoke with a Western volunteer, oh, probably a week, week and a half ago. And he was commenting how the tank crews didn't seem to be getting their stuff long better as far as driving. Um, he was watching like an LPOP, just watching the tanks move around. So, I mean, there's definitely some degradation going on. Um, <clears throat> But I think the Russians are trying to make up for that just by the sheer amount of artillery they shoot nonstop. So um, I don't know if you'll see it. And I mean, the only time you're going to really see it is during large offenses. And I think Russia's probably about sputtering out of the ability to launch massive assaults. So I don't know if it's going to really factor in too much as far as the tank crews go for experience. Um now, with the equipment, again, I don't know the difference between a T-80 and a T-72 or a T-90, so I can't really comment on that. But I know foreigners have been making fun of, like, we have a little telegram group between us and we make fun of their equipment. I mean, they've been making fun of them, but I don't know the difference on the tanks, so I can't comment on it. But I know the foreigners have noticed, like, some of the guys have noticed that are more keyed in on the anti-armor stuff. So. All right. That's, that's, that's awesome to hear. Thanks, Ryan. Oops, having a problem with the mute button there. Um so Ryan, um, you've, 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 it was kind of funny to hear you say, uh, you know, if it's a tank bad, if it's got wheels, it's, it's a, it's this. And if it's got tracks and it's not a tank, it's that, um, that's, that's about how I remember it. Um, uh, but no, but a, a serious question about that. The listener had, had put a question in. So, um, if you can speak to it, they want to know if you've, uh, seen a difference in the crew size. So I don't know if you can observe this, but if there's been any ambush experiences that would lend you to believe that that fewer people are exiting, um, exiting from the BMPs or exiting from the tanks, uh, I think they're trying to understand: is it truth on the ground in terms of uh, potentially less personnel staffing some of these BTGs? But is that manifested uh, in seeing less uh, individuals in the crews? Um, well, like I said earlier, I'm, uh, when it comes to like the probing attack stuff, it, they're, they're obviously not throwing, you know, eight infantry in the back of a BMP or whatnot, and then waiting for it to get shot just so they can mark the fire lines. Um, <clears throat> outside of that, uh, when we go look at the blown up tanks, there's still three guys in it. So, <laughs> uh, the BMP wise, um, no, I mean, I wouldn't say there's a huge difference in it. Obviously, like I said, they're not going to send a full BMP up to get shot at just so they can draw fire for the artillery. So um, I guess it'd probably be, probably not yet. Um, I don't think they've ran out of, like, they're not going to send a BMP or BTR or whatnot in without a full crew. Um, and they're definitely not running short on infantry yet. Um, so I'd probably say no overall. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, Ralph, go ahead. Just on a side note here, please share and retweet the space. It's a blue button on the bottom right of your screen. Please tag our guests. Please tag Ryan. And again, press the blue button with a plus sign on the bottom right of your screen. Share and retweet. It actually helps. Thank you, Walter. And please uh, make sure to tag Ryan in there. 
we like to help elevate uh, the, the Twitter presence of, of some of our featured guests that come in here and, and provide their time with us, especially since Ryan's on the ground there. Uh, so please, when you share and retweet out there, folks, please uh, not just uh, share and retweet, but also separately tag Ryan in there. Uh, and feel free to give him a follow if you would. Uh, Ryan, we, we pulled up a new speaker here while we get settled. Um, is there anything in our conversation so far uh, you, you would like to lead us in in a direction that maybe we haven't asked a question yet or, or you'd like to just tell us about? Um, not off the top of my head right now. <laughs> I did have a, a question that came in. So uh, uh, somebody had asked, uh, what, are, what are you personally doing in your downtime? Are you reading a book? Are you just uh, catching a nap? Is there no downtime for you uh, in between there? Uh, are you calling home? What, what sorts of things do you do if you get some time like this? Uh, like you're speaking with us here, obviously, in your downtime. What, what sort of other things are you doing? Oh, uh, mainly we just uh, shoot the shit with the guys. Uh, you know, we're pretty tight with each other and with the Ukrainians that we're with, so we're always cracking jokes. Um, obviously, clean weapons and all that stuff. Non-military, but yeah, just mainly if it's non-military stuff outside of cleaning weapons, just mainly talk to the guys, um, listen to music. I've been collecting a huge playlist on Spotify with Ukrainian music, so um, <clears throat> learn the language, which I'm doing really bad at because I haven't done it in like a month now but <laughs> a lot of the guys is basically we just hang out um there's not much else to do on your downtime on a front line other than just hang out so um pretty much that's about it how's your uh how's you you mentioned your ukrainian there uh could you talk about maybe the the unit itself not not your ukrainian but uh is is it working out in terms of the language is the language still a barrier for for some of the guys or are the gaps being filled how how is that developing so um we've actually been pretty lucky that our commanders have picked it up a lot um we so i mean like and we both sides ukrainians and americans we pick up each other's language it might not be where we can ask about how your wife's doing or your kids are doing but it's enough to crack jokes with each other and you know just an overall picture to um just be able to respond i guess you could say it's it's not bad um the ukrainians have learned learned english far quicker than we have been able to learn Ukrainian, but uh, that tends, even in Kurdistan, that was the same way. Uh, the Kurds in my unit that I was with would pick up English far quicker than I would pick up Kurdish. Um, Sorani Dazanim, though, I do speak Kurdish. Um, <clears throat> my Arabic's rusty, so don't ask on that. But yeah, basically, I mean, everyone picks up each other's language. You have to. Um, even if it's just, you know, like Leva, Prama, Priyama, like forward, left, right, back. Um, so, you know, you do pick up the language, so it is, you can operate in combat, um, and it just develops over time, so, yeah, um, our last commander was really good, but he got, he just got killed over in the east, um, his, the second in command that came in speaks really good English, so, actually, probably the best English I've heard from Ukrainian, so, um, we've been, we've been really lucky so far, and just on the language tag, side. Just to tag on to that language part there. Um, that seeing that there's more than um, just two languages spoken, does that make it harder in some instances that there's more than just uh, two languages that you, you, there might be Belarusian, you might hear Russian. Uh, is that a non-factor or is that a factor? Uh, it's really a non-factor. So, and the, Ukra the Ukrainians on here, please don't slaughter me for it. Um, <clears throat> we probably have picked up Russian. Just some of us probably don't know it because a lot of the Russian and Ukrainian words are either really similar or really close. Uh, the Belarusians, a lot of them, luckily, know Russian, so it hasn't been an issue. 
Uh, like you get Ukrainians say, I don't know Russian, but they still understand it. They just don't, they, they more likely just don't want to speak it. Um, so it hasn't been an issue really, uh, whether it's, you know, the, the Georgians, Belarusians, and these other Eastern European countries that have came here to help fight, uh, their volunteers typically don't speak any English, but they all tend to pick up Ukrainian in like five minutes. So like, they're pretty good. Like the Georgian Legion, those guys are, they probably, they're probably all almost fluent in ukrainian by now same with the belarusians um and that's probably because of similarity in their languages um with america we're ha we have trouble pronouncing the kh sound and these other ones so i don't know if that's why we have trouble picking it up or maybe we're just all thick-headed i don't know but no i have they, the other the other foreign units that aren't english speaking they don't usually have a problem i don't know about the french we have well we have a couple of french guys with us but um they speak english so Thanks, Ryan. And I know Constantine came back up here for uh, a question. Go ahead, Constantine. Uh, so I was uh, going to ask this. Uh, are, um, when you're out uh, or uh, are, are mosquitoes are, are just annoying right now? As oh, God, before? they're terrible. They are freaking absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, we found out real quick to uh, request mosquito spray. The mosquitoes here, if you're from America, you'll know this, you'll know this comment. The mosquitoes in Ukraine are worse than the ones in Minnesota. Like they're the size of freaking geese. Yeah, that's I remember that as well. It was a huge problem. I would sit and you know use the spray, use those spirals, burn them, everything. And but do you still get them into your nose through the through the no nasal canals? Yeah, we so. started running around with mosquito nets, uh, looking like a bunch of weirdos on the front line with Kevlar's over top of them. It was pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty good picture. Uh, but I mean, we, we had guys that actually got in the U.S. They were fine. Uh, throughout their U.S. military career, never had issues with it. But over here, they got bit enough to where like their ankles and their arms would swell up, and then like their wrists swell swelled up. Like we, they were having to give them freaking allergy shots. It was bad. And then after that mission, we learned uh, probably to bring mosquito spray. Uh, oh, and uh, the follow up uh, after mosquitoes. What about flies? I personally haven't been bothered by the flies. Uh, the ticks have been pretty bad too in certain areas, but um, the flies not really so far. So. Mainly the mosquitoes are, they're brutal though. That's bad. Yeah, got it. Thank you. Ryan, on that note, could you talk to us? You've been there since, since February. So you've been, um, you know, basically uh, in rotation uh, or, or serving continuously for, for quite a long time here. Um, talk to us about uh, some of the changes in terms of, of terrain and weather. Uh, so when you first started this back in February, you know, at least from what we're seeing here, it looked quite different. Snow on the ground. There's no leaves out. There's no greenery. Um, it hadn't warmed up yet. You had mentioned flies. You know, those those probably weren't out that early. Uh, but could you talk to us about the changes and uh, in, in how that's affected you, whether it's operations or just how you guys have, have dealt with it and dealt with the seasonality that, that's happening? Yeah. Um, so going back to Mashoon at the very start, when we ended up staying in Mashoon for most of that, that battle, um, none of us brought cold weather gear, and we basically almost froze for five days. Um, after that, it was always bring the bring cold weather gear, at least like your under like the underclothes, um, like silkies or whatnot. Um, <clears throat> but the fighting now, I mean, we're still wearing full uniforms. Nobody's running around in t-shirts. Um, I I joke with them. I start wearing shorts. Um, I'm obviously not going to, but um, most of our guys would rather it be cold again, just because of the mosquitoes. Um, I'm usually a hot weather person. Like I love Iraq weather, Kurdistan weather. But the mosquitoes here, now that it's like late spring, early summer, whatever you want to call it, it's insane. 
I'd rather be cold. Ryan, wait until the second wave comes. <laughs> and, and Ryan, uh, the terrain features, can I, can I probe you a little bit on that? Uh, do you prefer to be moving around with, with the greenery and the lushness, uh, or is it making things a little bit more difficult? Um, would, you, would you prefer you know, less foliage or more foliage in terms of your operations? Um, <clears throat> I like the more foliage. I don't know if fighting in the forest right now, back up north of Kiev, like uh, when I was northeast of Bazaar. Um, so basically, Milna and then Bazaar is north of that. I was north of that even further. Uh, basically, northwest Ivan Kiev. I'd rather be in the forest, to be honest, or the city. Um, predominantly because I hate open field fighting, especially against tanks. It's not fun at all. Or against the helicopters. Um, the forest is just more, personally, more secure. Maybe I'm just a pussy, but I just hate being out in the field. Um, but uh, I guess we'll see. Uh, I think it's going to be a pretty nasty fall uh, when all the wheat and everything gets finished because obviously we're going to be dealing with a lot of fires again. Um, you know, we fought, I fought in the north when the forests were on fire. That wasn't that big of a deal, but it also didn't. It's also not as big of a spread or it won't spread as quick as like when a field gets as fire. Um, it might be a little bit easier to move around here soon once the, the foliage in the fields get or like the crops get bigger. So ask me in like three months and I might change my mind. But right now the open fields, I just hate it. I'd rather be in the forest with foliage or even in the forest cold, just anywhere with trees, trees and hills. <laughs> and and you mentioned fires there. Can I ask you a specific question? So again, please don't share if, if, if it's if it's not kosher. Um, have you noticed uh, burns being performed in terms of the environment to uh, to 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 either not give terrain to to you folks or or vice versa? Are you noticing any uh, any fires like that uh, to to destroy terrain to, to deny movement or no? Um, the Russians have intentionally burned us out of areas before um, in the south. Um, the Ukrainians, so we can go back to how Ukraine fights in cities and stuff, and we can talk about this all day long. The Ukrainians will absolutely refuse to damage anything, if it, even if it means a better defense, um, which is good because it's their own country. They obviously don't want to be damaging stuff to make it more defensible in certain instances. Like, so um, I was in Iraq during ISIS and all that other stuff, fighting ISIS. They were really good at developing even the smallest village into an absolute brutal murderous bloodbath area um and that's predominantly because they'll knock holes in walls so they can just jump between the buildings real quick they, they do what they call murder holes where you just knock a small hole out so you can spray a bunch of machine gun fire use a sniper through it the ukrainians however are extremely hesitant on doing that and i understand why obviously i'm not saying it's a bad thing um but no i mean the ukrainians aren't burning fields they're not burning forests uh, even when it would be an advantage to them um and I mean, that's, it's their country. I can't tell them to do it, but I mean, <clears throat> the Russians definitely do it though. But um, yeah, on the Ukrainian side, I have yet to see a unit that says, all right, we're going to go burn this forest to get the Russians out. It's more of like, we'll just wait and see if they move or we'll just try to drop one shell on top of them type deal or use a drone. Uh, they're not really, I don't know, it's not, not destroying the train, but they're not in they're not molding the train to how they should probably do it in certain instances. But again, it's because they're not trying to create destruction more than what, you know what I mean? Like, it's hard to explain. They're not, they're not going to destroy something just to defend it basically. But, uh, and I try to tell them, you know, the Russians are going to level the city anyway, knock the holes in the wall, be done with it, but they still won't do it. So um, that's more, uh, that might be something in the culture with the respect part of it too. I don't know. It's not a, it's not a negative thing. It's not a positive thing for 
on like my view on it. And I think Constantine is Ukrainian, so maybe he can go more in depth on it. Or there, there might be Ukrainian on here on why the Ukrainians refuse to do it. I'm not sure. You know. Well, Ukraine is, uh, you know, we love our land, and you know, it's it's really hard to see to see it burning. It's hard to see it burning. You know, when you watch the videos, so if you and if you have to do it yourself, it would, you know. I I can't imagine the pain that, that they're doing, and you're describing everything, you know, just about right. Yeah, and that's what I figured. And like I said, I don't blame them for it. I'm not gonna yell at them if they don't listen to us when we say, "Hey, let's put a hole in this wall so we can do a close ambush and run." Um, you know, that's it's their country. We're gonna follow what they say, especially our commanders. Obviously, we have chain of command, so uh, we just listen to it and deal with it. But yeah, I mean, the Russians do burn forests. They do burn land. Uh, they obviously will destroy a whole city. So, um, but the Ukrainians, on the other hand, no, they don't really do it. Um, that I've personally witnessed on the front line. Thanks, Ryan. Um, time is time is relative. So, two different things related to time. Uh, one, I just want to do a time check and make sure we're still we're still good with you, or how long we have, or or what time we have to wrap up with you. Um, I'll pause there. Um, I'm good on time. I don't really have anything going on tomorrow. Um, like I said, I'm moving areas. So now it's basically getting the logistics down so I don't drive into the wrong area. Um, and getting all that down. So <clears throat> yeah, I'm good on time. I'm just basically going to lounge around and be lazy for once. And it's much related. easier than th- thank you for sharing the time with Yes, th- thank you very much, Ryan. Um, and and I was going to ask a question to you on time. Uh, time being very relative for you, you you've spent, um, what's probably almost an eternity there now. Uh, but I was going to ask if there's anything in terms of of the outlook or the battlefield um, that you're looking forward to, or if that's too dangerous uh, to have hope like that. But sort of, uh, are you anticipating different phases? Are you looking forward to different phases or the steady state? Uh, you're, you're just in a flow right now in the steady state. Are, is there anything uh, that you're looking forward to or, or not looking forward at all? Uh, more high Mars. Uh, that'd be great. Uh, no, on that point, just less artillery. Uh, honestly, I mean, like my morale is fine. It's just, it's just so annoying. Um, hopefully, the Russians slowly deplete their stocks. I don't know how much they can produce a month, but hopefully, it's not more than they're using. So they eventually cut down the artillery. Um, outside of that, just pushing them back. I mean, I got all the time in the world, so <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here till it's over. So if they want to make it drag on for two years to where they don't have any of their people left i'm fine with that let's do it but um less artillery would be nice well the supplies of the artillery um ryan are now under attack and we saw that in the first 36 hours after the high mass systems came in the a number of supply depots as well as maintenance depots in the third echelon have been hit quite hard so that um one would hope that they can't refurbish and maintain their artillery as well and they seem to be running out of ammunition in a number of spaces and places. Yeah, like I said, like the the more they exhaust now, the better. And um, a lot of people are wondering why, like the Ukrainians aren't using the HIMARS to hit troop movements. Um, that's probably a waste at this point. If they can keep targeting these warehouses full of stuff, or training centers, or even the DNR LNR politicians, that would be great. Um, <laughs> not not yeah. a lot, but great. But and uh, politically incorrect statement there. But if they no, can keep hitting not, the warehouses, that's perfect. Right, as long as they hit the warehouses, enemies. exactly. Hit the warehouses, hit the rail yards, hit the switch yards, hit everything which interrupts their supplies. I agree with you. 
can you give people in our space who have never been under indirect fire an impression or some, some kind of a sense as to how debilitating that can be? Uh, the easiest way to describe it is so uh, find a road that's washed out completely or it's super bumpy and drive like 100 miles an hour down it repeatedly while smashing your head against the steering wheel. It's freaking ridiculous. <laughs> How do you de- how do you deal with the after effects, and how do your colleagues and the brothers in arms deal with it? I don't know. So we actually thought about that. Like, so we we're in Moshuna. It was pretty much twenty four seven artillery, uh, day night, whatever. Uh, Irpy, like a lot of this, you don't really think about it till you, once you leave the battlefield, and then you're like, oh shit! Like we were getting artillery all the time. Um, when it's happening, you just get low. Um, typically, you know, you put your hands over your neck and head. Um, because if you lose a leg, you lose a leg, but uh, you can't really lose your head or your neck. Um, but, I mean, when it's happening, you don't really think about it. At least we don't. Some people do get shell-shocked. Like, there's been Ukrainians that have been shell-shocked. You just go up and smack them, and it usually knocks them out of it. Um, not, like, hit them real hard. You just tap them, you know, and be like, hey, it's fine. Uh, and then usually they'll snap out of it. Uh, luckily, uh, we haven't had an issue with our guys lately doing that. At the start of the war with a bunch of new recruits who had like never been special operations or under heavy attack uh it was pretty bad for them but um so like when it's happening it's not that big of a deal for us we just get low and then you know tap on people to make sure they're they're still aware what's going on uh if we have to move we'll yell at them to move so i mean it's, it's it's at the time you don't really think about it you just react it's just natural movement I got it. That's yeah, so something you, you you briefly touched on there, actually, around with the HIMARS, and obviously we've seen lots of uh, lots of videos coming out the past day or two of um, you know pre 